0: What's up, y'all? Great show today. Guess what? I sold a farm. I bought another farm. Returning guests is here today to talk about it. We have joining us the founder and CEO of AcreTrader, a farmland real estate investment company offering individuals access to low-minimum passive farm investments. Today's show, we're talking all about farmland, an asset class you know I love that historically has been one of the top performers but hasn't been easily accessible for most investors. Our guest is trying to change that. We start by hearing how COVID increased interest in farmland from both institutions and private equity firms. Then we walk through the process of purchasing farmland through Acre Trader. We use my recent purchase of an organic farm in Nebraska as a case study example. We hear about their due diligence process they go through for each potential investment, their process for deciding which farm is an attractive opportunity, and importantly, at what price. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YChart's report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YChart's comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Acre Traders, Carter Malloy. Carter, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Meb.
0: Where do we find you today?
1: Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's a home for me and for our business both.
0: I'm here in Los Angeles in an actual office. I just finished in the most Los Angeles way possible, a little snack of vegan avocado key lime pie. Does that sound like the most LA thing one could eat for an afternoon snack? It's actually quite delicious. Who would have known?
1: Your office is quite LA too, For my last visit there, it's a great spot. For the
0: people watching on YouTube, we're talking about farming today, so you can see in the background, this is a picture of my farm, and I have a big announcement to make about it today, and we'll get to this later in the show about some farmland transactions I've been involved with, so listeners, make sure you listen to the end. Carter, last time we had you on was almost two years ago, which is crazy, because it doesn't feel that long, on episode 186. What's been going on in the farmland world last couple of years? Anything interesting?
1: Everything's interesting in our world. It's been a, been quite a bit of movement in commodity prices, in land prices, I think in larger markets' acceptance of our business in this position, both on the farmer side and on the investor side. So, as a company, we've seen tremendous growth. We've had a, a few capital reasons since I last saw you as well. So, lots been happening, been all very good developments.
0: I think probably the biggest news item that I can think about was one of the world's richest men disclosing he is now the largest farmland owner in the U.S., Mr. Bill Gates. Is he on your platform? Has he been buying up all this farmland through AcreTrader or what? Has he been sharp elbowing you in the neighborhood?
1: don't know that it's that extreme. We do have a number of what we would call highly sophisticated and great investors on our platform that we work with both directly through the AcreTrader.com platform, but also more in general in evaluating farmland investments and buying larger tracts as well Should, should they be out to do that.
0: You mentioned ag prices, and they've started to perk up in the past about years or so. I mean, lumber being the most dramatic example, but certainly corn, wheat, everything has been doing a little bit of a J curve up. Walk us through since 2019, what's the farmland world look like as far as impact of COVID? I forgot we had a pandemic in between last time we chatted, as well as the returns for the farmland space in general. What's it look like?
1: They'll start backwards on the impact of COVID. We've seen more activity in general investing in land. I think rural land and farmland often get lumped into the same analysis. And and there's been a particularly large bump, everybody can understand why, of people buying rural land, so recreational property outside of a city where they can go hang out or bug out or whatever it may be. So I think there's there's certainly been a a reconnecting with with land since then. Bigger picture on the farmland side as well, we are seeing uh, some, some strengthening of prices, in particular in the Corn Belt. In the Midwest, in the I states, seeing some record farmland prices there as a whole, continued sort of slow and steady compounding of farmland prices is what we've what we're experiencing. And that's frankly what we've experienced in this industry for decades.
0: You attribute it to inflation concerns, you attribute it to supply demand imbalances. What's been the big driver?
1: Inflation is a big one, right? I think I think you hit the nail on the head. There, there are certainly real considerations around inflation. So that's one. There's institutionalization occurring in our asset class that hasn't really been here in the past. The private equity funds alone have grown from three billion to thirty-five billion over the last decade, roughly. It's still a drop in the bucket, right? There's a three-trillion-dollar asset class almost in the U.S. alone. So there's still a relatively small participant, albeit beginning to to really step in on the demand side of the picture. The supply side picture is is always the same, which is less. Right. The, the amount of farmland we have, and it's, the underlying economics are pretty straightforward. On that front, the amount of farmland we have shrinks every minute. I, I think in the U.S., we lose several acres just about every minute. So it's an incredible rate of farmland that we lose, while at the same time, the demand for the products that come off of that land continues to grow.
0: The nice thing about farming in general is it tends to be socially distanced as well. I mean, you can kind of put your feet up in some of these air-conditioned GPS tractors and just watch old episodes of Seinfeld and the Simpsons. But what's been sort of the investment impact during COVID? Has it been something that you think the farmland space in general has been dominated by the high prices, thus pushing the prices of land and interest, people running away from the stock market? Any general takeaways or vibe from the past two years? Any insight from your seat?
1: I think the investor demand from our seat has gone up dramatically, the investor interest and demand. and The first few weeks, a little over a year ago, call it early March, when we were all moving home from our offices, we saw engagement with our website going up dramatically, but investment activity relatively slow. And that first few weeks of, oh my goodness, is the world ending. Once we got through that phase, then we have seen nothing but growth and demand on the platform. and And though, again, in the bigger picture, the investor's are not necessarily driving up land prices, if you will, because professional investors in farmland are still a small minority of the overall industry ownership.
0: I thought you were just going to say you guys ran a huge digital ad campaign on Farmers Only, and that just drove all the interest. The nice thing about farmland, along with a lot of other sort of illiquid asset classes, is when the stock market was going bonkers last year, it feels like 10 years ago, the volatility of things like farmland I used to joke, I'd post pictures on Twitter and say, this is me evaluating the price changes in my farmland is literally just me standing in a field with nothing else. You have the steadiness of something that doesn't bounce around as much and is balanced with some income. You guys did a great white paper I don't know if you've updated it about kind of the case for farmland investing. We'll link to it in the show notes. But any general thoughts on the last few years relative to sort of the booms and bust cycles of farmland? You know, we had the 80s driven by a lot of debt and then sort of the booming early 2000s and then a little bit of a mellow period and kind of the mid-teens. These are broad generalizations just going off maybe in a creep. So you can correct me. And then it's starting to really pick up again. Any general thoughts on the broad return space with farmland?
1: I think you got it pretty right there through the positive return history of farmland. And and NC Reef, we're a member of that index, actually, to to track farmland prices Been tracking them since 1990. And you see some great years and some okay years. What we don't see are really terrible years. There were some in a few states, in particular, in the early 80s. uh, There was a big debt fuel boom and insurance company fuel boom that created a lot of speculation. We we don't see that occurring in the market today. As a whole... You're exactly right. The 2015 to 2020 period was one of slower compounding, albeit still compounding, and still seeing some catch up today. Although still sort of below that that mean reversion over the long term trend. You really hit the nail on the head for farmland. This is not a it's not a wild asset. It's it's not boom and bust times at all. It's slow and steady compounding. We're not out here looking for five and ten baggers, right, to take home crazy returns. But uh, we're also far more risk averse in an investment style than I think most most other asset classes.
0: I wonder why you haven't seen the leveraging up in the farmland space, given where interest rates are. I wonder if it's scars of prior generations and farmers remembering the pain they went through when they got upside down, or is it something that it's just transitioning to a different sort of new normal of lower leverage? Because in a world of, you know, 1%, in some parts of the world, zero negative interest rates... You would think that would cause more leverage to happen in the sector, but that's not showing up in the data. Does that sound right?
1: There's a lot of outright ownership of farmland out there. I think throughout the sector, the LTVs are like 20% or less, is a very unlevered asset class. Now, you get, you get into some streaks of California where there's real, real institutional presence and heavier cash flow crops like, like almonds and pistachios, and you'll see more leverage. But, but again, on a deal by deal basis, even there, we're talking 50s and 60s LTVs, maximum. So just far less systemic leverage throughout this asset class than others.
0: We've talked about a lot of this on the podcast before, but farmland represents probably the biggest missing piece of the global market portfolio that's investable, particularly from a public standpoint. We've had one of the REITs on, but there's really only a couple of public REITs and then private funds. And then kind of what you guys are doing. I mean, obviously the direct ownership, but the direct ownership comes with all of its pain and the booty as well. Give us an update on Acre Trader. You guys had a major announcement, a big fundraising, but also maybe before that, give us kind of the one minute overview for the new listeners of what you guys do and how you approach investing in farmland.
1: We are an investment platform for farmland dedicated to three core principles or, or goals. And that is access, liquidity, and transparency, and, and a firm commitment to all those things. Pretty straightforward for investors. They can come on our website in a matter of minutes, add farmland to their portfolio. And you're exactly right. Rather than going out to a county you may never have been to and popping down a million dollars and managing a farm, which is a non-starter for just about everyone. Through our website, it's pretty straightforward. You go on it. It's a, in a couple of minutes. You can invest as little as fifteen or $20,000 in a particular farm. And our business is to take care of it from there. So it's truly passive income for the investor. Both the farmer pays you rent and the appreciation that happens in the underlying land. We take care of the back end, administration, payments, working with the farmers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's truly easy for that investor to, to have that exposure.
0: Give us an overview. What type of farms are you guys looking at? Size, cost, geography, all that good stuff.
1: We tend to represent a mixed portfolio. If you, if you look at, across our deals, of about 50 we've, we've done so far. They're usually kind of a million to five million each uh, in terms of a total dollar value. We tend to be a little more row crop than permanent crop call it 70-30 or 60-40 row crops to permanent crops, and we can dig into the difference of those in a moment. If you look through the historical performance of farmland, that's the most easily identifiable efficient frontier in terms of allocation across the two primary types of farmland. So, so the efficient frontier being a risk and return.
0: And does that mean that row crops are more, what's the differentiation between the two?
1: Row crops you plant every year. Permanent crops are things like trees where you you plant it, you may grow it for 20 or 50 or even 100 years on that same asset. So with with a permanent crop, you tend to have direct commodity exposure and some of the volatility that comes along with that. You have higher cash flow. This is a generalized statement. There's all kinds of exceptions. But as a general statement, the cash flows are higher. The appreciation value or appreciation has been lower, that, that factor, because the trees are depreciating while the land is appreciating, if you will. Position that next to row crops where a farmer is paying you rent. Usually crop agnostic because they can change them every year and often do. And the historical returns, both of them unlevered, are kind of low double digit IRRs. And with row crops, the larger portion of the returns has been the appreciation, with some some underlying cash flow there as well from the farmer paying rent.
0: If you could look across the fifty farms ish that you guys have done, how many different crops do you think that represents?
1: Thirteen states, probably twelve to fifteen crop types. And
0: so you guys charge how do you do it you do carry do you do a management fee how does it work for the investor
1: The primary way we make revenue is the seller pays to sell the farmland seller pays a real estate brokerage fee that they are usually paying anyway and then the it goes into one of our special purpose vehicles there's usually a management fee, 75 basis points, sometimes it's 100. And then at the end of life, there is a brokerage fee as well, where we act as the broker to go sell the farm. You're going to pay that fee no matter what. There's going to be a broker involved. The reason that we've set up our business model that way is because you live in the ETF world, map, so you know it well. Low fees are the way to go. That is the, the, the way we're all headed. And so we'd rather get there and focus on volume and make money The in, in fees that are already going to be paid in a transaction and keep the fees to the investor as low as possible.
0: To me, that's a no-brainer where it's no net addition of costs. You just kind of inserted yourself and removed one of, the, one of the brokers out of the equation. Remind us, how do you source these farms? Are you guys out just knocking on doors, looking it up on what is the farmland equivalent of Zillow? Is there such a thing?
1: There is no such thing. So we've got a team of five people today and growing very quickly dedicated to identifying and underwriting farmland that ultimately comes up to an investment committee that I sit on for anything to go to our website. So if you think about the funnel of farms that come in on a weekly basis, that may be 50, it may be 200. And maybe in one of those passes, our diligence to get on the website. And I want to speak about diligence more, more in detail in a moment because it's arguably the most important thing that we do is the amount of knows the amount of farms you don't see, but we have done a, a crap load of work and decided to back away from it anyway because what we're really about as a business is making sure that we can curate the marketplace as well as possible. The easiest way for us to demonstrate that is you go on the platform right now, you are unlikely to see a farm listed today uh, when we're raising capital. We usually list a farm and they subscribe in minutes or hours, sometimes days, but we more often than not do not have inventory. And and that's our commitment. That's the best way we can show to investors that we do put them in front of revenue. We would rather forego revenue and have high-quality offerings than just maximize revenue every day because we want to be doing this for a very long time.
0: And I feel like that's a tough thing to balance. You have a marketplace that, on one hand, is constrained by the supply. You have the demand. And hilariously, it's like a Nike sneaker drop, the way you guys do these things. if it's Or an NBA top shot. If you don't invest quickly, these things get filled up. How do you guys balance that? Because it's a very seductive sort of... I mean, this is also like, tell me your biggest weakness interview question. It's like, I work too hard. But like, try to be a little honest about it. I imagine it has to be hard because if you have so much demand, it obviously means more revenue for your company and more earnings and everything. But how do you balance that? And what are the big disqualifiers on the due diligence process? What's sort of the checklist? And I've seen some of y'all's reports and they are very thorough. So talk to us about the whole DDQ process.
1: I want to certainly dig into diligence. Uh, first, I'll answer the hard question there. We are experiencing overwhelming demands. There's no way around that. We've raised a bunch of venture capital here recently that we can talk about a little bit. We are with the express consideration of investing more heavily in data science, geospatial analytics, farm underwriting, and our, our supply side of our business, if you will. We are unwilling to waver on diligence and unwilling to waver on quality. We and our board very strongly believe that is the right thing to do long term. And so, what if we miss some dollars today? We will build. We are in the process, we have built the biggest business in our industry, and, and we will continue to, to, to be the category king by, by doing the right thing by the investors and by all of the stakeholders involved on the supply side of our business as well. The diligence process for us is multi-stage, it's very formalized. We have a, a three-stage diligence process that each farm passes through. Underlying that first is data science and geospatial analytics. And what that means is maps and information, we boil it down, right? And we've got some really, really great people on that team. We've just brought over somebody from Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins. We brought over a farm specific geospatial analyst. We had a CFA data scientist join us from Bridgewater formerly where was his last employer. So we got some really great folks on that team doing the the upfront, the quick flippers, if you will. We want to say no as fast as we can to to any deal that's not going to fit the mold. Then then it'll step into the second phase of the diligence, which is really where more and more humans get involved in building financial models and doing local diligence. We call farmers, we call neighbors, et cetera. Diligence phase three is then getting even further and getting somebody from our team, one of our managers, somebody we work very close with out there on the farm, doing a physical inspection, digging much deeper on environmental reporting, previous farming practices, et cetera, on on the farm. Then it moves through a contract phase and ultimately onto the website. Shouldn't pass through that death gauntlet of what is our team and ultimately the leadership of that team under a gentleman by the name of Ben Maddox, who's one of the more intelligent people I've ever had the pleasure of being around. And he is staunchly defensive of quality, if you will. So he's he's really the frontline defender there, the the ax man, the no man, if you will, to turn those away.
0: What are the main, not red flags, but haymakers that you're just like, nope, scratch, either the most common or most egregious or ones that you just like see that are like immediate disqualifiers?
1: Water's a huge one. We can start there, but Water, soil, and financial profile are the three things that we really if you bucket the three things we're looking at very heavily on each farm, that's it. And then each of them have twenty to fifty different sub bullets may go underneath them. But as a broad statement, the water is important, the operator is important, the neighborhood that you're in is very important, and the exit strategy that comes along with that. So we see a lot of what we call Excel farming happening in our industry, which is you can find looks great on paper, but are terrible deals in actuality. We have to be very cautious of it. Our industry has to be very cautious of not doing those things. As an example, you can find great cap rates on cotton ground in the panhandle of Texas. And there are a few good farms in there. The the cap rates are great because the water's going away. In California, there are very attractive deals on paper, but upon closer inspection, if a farm in California does not have what we call dual-sourced water, so two different places to get your water from today and in 10 years and in 20 years, then usually the advice is to run away. And if somebody comes to us with a farm, or if somebody comes to you with a farm for that matter, in California, and they're not talking about water outright on the first page of the, the conversation, then that's always a, a big concern for us. So cannot express how many farms we have looked at in California and said no to because of that water issues.
0: What's the big risk? It's just drying up, too many people using it, too many folks in LA? What's the main issue for most of these farms?
1: drying up is the big one. Regulations are a big one because we've got, a, as a state, California uh, has put in place what's called Sigma. It's a, a large body of, of water regulations. There are drought years. I know that you've experienced, I experienced when I lived there in 2014 and 2015. And in those years, some farms can be wasteful in their water use. And so first part of that regulation is to try to shore up a lot of that. And then it's to begin having these irrigation districts more appropriately allocate water to the farms and or charge them much higher prices to do so. There are two ways primary ways to get water, ground surface water, that's, you know, a little canal running by your farm, and then well water, getting it out of an aquifer. Both of those have unique challenges to them. But what is important is that to the extent you ever possibly can, making sure that both of those unbelievable plan, if you don't.
0: Is that not listed as like a main bullet point ingredient on the description of the property? Do you have to like dig through to the footnotes to find that or do research? Or is it something that the listings are not clear about because it seems like a pretty big issue to disclose or not disclose what the situation is
1: that is a very fair statement unfortunately no it is it is often not discussed at all right or there's just the assumption of hey this looks great in excel and so this is a good farm but when you take a closer look without dual sourcing it's a hugely problematic and, and even in dual sourcing it can be very problematic as well front page right you've got to be talking about water in California really Anywhere you need to be speaking of water. Arkansas, it's wells. and Mississippi, it's wells and making sure you've got a long-term permanent access to that water. In the Midwest, it's getting the water off your farm and then making sure you have appropriate drainage to get rid of the water because it can ruin a crop if the thing sits under pooling under for a while. Soil and financial profile. And financial profile is a catch-all of bottom-up and top-down analysis. What are rents? What are appropriate rents? So a lot of farms get sold. There can be a sale leaseback where it's over-rented, so it inflates the cap rate. That's really dangerous. You've got to watch out for that.
0: Meaning when you say over-rented, meaning they just have crops on it all year long?
1: The seller of the farm is willing to overpay or that specific because they're doing a sale-leaseback transaction. Or simply the farmer on there has neighboring acres and is willing to pay it well above market because it's a contiguous farm. That's great. And and you want to be able to earn that income if, if you can while making sure it's a good deal for the farmer. But if somebody else is not willing to pay that rent, you need to really underwrite to market not underwriting to the inflated value. Likewise is the top-down approach on comparable sales and understanding what's really in the area, what's fresh on comps. And that's a big, big uh, internal effort of ours is our large and proprietary comp sales database. So that's the bottom up and top down. Again, there's a a myriad of other factors there as well.
0: How often are you guys, does it meet all the criteria and then you're actually like, you're just too cheap? You know, you have your price you're going to pay and somebody outbids you. Is that rare? Is it often?
1: Very often, <laughs> all of the above are real showstoppers in underwriting, but certainly this price discipline is very, very important as well.
0: All right, Bill, if you're listening, Mr. Gates, you got to quit driving the prices up everywhere. So, all right. And the third one, you mentioned soil.
1: Soil. That, that's correct. So, in, in very in some states, they even have soil scores. So, in in Iowa, they have the corn suitability rating. Illinois, they have the productivity index. So, in some states, you've got these great indices. In other, it's really about having local and, and hyper-local knowledge on a particular type of sandy loam or silty loam or clay soil. And really, why you want to understand those things is, can this farm drain well? Again, can it get water off when there is a large water or watershed event? And can it grow a multitude of crops? And if not, that's okay, too. You just really got to understand, hey, this is a rice farm and it's only going to grow rice. So we're pretty committed to rice and what would probably be soybeans alongside that.
0: Do you guys ever foresee a time when you guys are running the show on the farm too, or is that just too much headache and trust the farmers to know their land and area more?
1: You hit the nail on the head there at the end. The local farmer is going to know how to farm more appropriately than we do. We've got a lot of farmers on staff here, a lot of folks with very material asset management experience in farmland. So we speak to farmers about, hey, here's some tech trends and things that really do work, or some treatments that we're seeing really work, or some carbon programs that are of interest. But what we want to be careful of is not demanding how they run their business. So these farmers have their own business that they own and operate.
0: Before we leave the due diligence section, anything else to come to mind you think is particularly important or you want to touch on?
1: I ran through a lot of what sounds like very complicated factors. At the end of the day, Diligence on the person or the platform is very important, understanding what we're up to, what's out there in the market, and diligence in the individual deal. We would urge anyone to look through. You can see, again, with full transparency, the deals that we've done. You can certainly look at those yourself. If you are not a farmland expert, hiring somebody external that can go dig through it is a farmland expert and that trust but verify thing, right? Go dig in and really understand what you're getting into before you invest. What we're most proud of is that we have a ton of active farmers, active farmland investment experts investing on our platform. So those people really come hit us hard with hard questions and we love hard questions. I think that's where where the truth really comes out.
0: So far we've identified two new business models for you guys or someone else to expand into one, the farmland brokerage and second, the farmland consultant valuation specialist to hire and go over all the acre trader deals. I like it. So you guys just raised a huge slug of cash. Walk me through the process. Were you down on Sand Hill road? Doing all the presentations? Was it family office money? Was it just Bill Gates investing? How'd you guys decide to raise all this money? And what are you doing with it? Are you guys just going to buy a bunch of fancy tractors or what? What's the plan?
1: No, this is the, the, in reverse there. We raised around a capital in 2020, a little over a year ago. And that was a, a family office, primarily one of the larger family offices around or an offshoot of that. This year, just about a month ago, we closed on our Series A round. We raised an additional $12 million for the business. That process was actually pretty quick. We launched a formal process, and I think actually is one of the benefits of the pandemic is I did it all sitting in a chair on the side office meeting room. I'm, I'm in here. It was a two week blitz of being on Zoom all day, every day with some great venture capital investors from around the world. We were lucky to, after a couple of weeks, receive a, a few competing term sheets. Ultimately, um, we chose to go with a, what we viewed as a highly strategic lead investor jump capital. I think maybe four, if not five, Unicorn, like billion dollar plus type investment platforms that they are investors in. They really understand a lot of things that we don't as, as a growing business of about 30 employees today. We also had the Revolutions Rise of the Rest Seed Fund Invest. That's a uh, Steve Case there and Narya Capital was, was an investor as well. That's pretty public on, if you search their name, a uh, looks like it looks like from, if you look online, a Peter Thiel and Dreesen and Eric Schmidt um, and several other names are some of the investors in that fund. So. We really got some awesome support. I think for us as a, as a company, we always want to look out and make sure that we avoid pitfalls that others have, to the extent we can. We're just incredibly lucky to have the investors that we do and the guidance we do. We actually just got got finished our board meeting yesterday, so it's a really, uh, really awesome time right now. Here in Toronto.
0: and most of the uh, money is it headcount? Is it expanding the platform? Is it marketing? What are you guys going to do with all of it?
1: Primarily, headcount is, is really the commitment there. Call it half and half. Software engineering and operations. We are really doubling down. I think we've got nine or 10 software engineers with us today and really leaning in heavier in particular on data science and geospatial efforts that, that I mentioned earlier. We talked a lot about underwriting and the supply side. That's a big commitment of ours, uh, both just out marketing to farmers and what we call network nodes throughout the farming community to let them know, Hey, we are here. We are a capital partner. We are here to help you grow. That's primarily where most of our farms come from. Is a farmer brings it to us and says, Hey, i I know this may come up for sale sometime soon, and I'd love to farm it if you guys can be an investor with me. That's something we're we're really excited to be pushing further on.
0: Any other, while we're here, business expansion plans? Is it mostly sort of blocking and tackling of kind of what you guys are doing now? I imagine it's a blue ocean opportunity. There's just not really a lot of people doing what you're doing. Or is it like, hey, we raised 10 million bucks and we're going to expand into Argentina and Belarus or something. Any other general plans? Or is it mainly just grow what you got?
1: Grow what you got. You know, do do one thing and do it well. We we do broker farms. So we're investing more there, right? The one-to-one transactions are... Our website today is primarily focused on one too many, but we do have people that say, hey, I, I want to buy a $5 million farm and or bigger, whatever that may be. And so we want to be able to help a lot more there. So that's the primary it's the primary push is just getting more people and continue to get better at what we do. And then I mentioned again, having strategic partners is really key to, to raising capital. So we've expanded our board of directors as well and added the former COO of the largest farmland investment firm out there. And also he was the head of Their four and a half billion dollar US ag portfolio. So, the largest farmland portfolio here in the US. And so, again, it's really about just getting as much guidance as we can, as much outside counsel as we can, hiring as much great, great talent as we can.
0: We had so much fun on the last podcast we did. Listeners, you've heard me talk a lot about our experience with farmland in my family, which was mostly in Nebraska in western Kansas and all my trials and tribulations and agony and ecstasy over the years of being a farmer. And two of the biggest problems I had was one is that for me, it was very much always a connection to my heritage and my family, you know, on one side. And so the ability to go out there and spend time with relatives and also spend time on the farm, ride around on AVs, shoot some guns and just be outside in this beautiful farmland that we had in Western Kansas, which as a child did not check that box. I was like, this is so boring. This is the ugliest, you know, because it's so flat. But today, like, it's the most peaceful (laughs) living in Los Angeles, beautiful countryside But the challenge has been this generational trend of there's not a lot of young people farmers as much anymore. It's the older generation and a lot of the young people are, you know, moving to cities. The heritage aspect for me, part of it is becoming less and less of a part of the total. And then there's on the other side is the investment side. And I think it's one of the world's best non-correlated investments to a traditional portfolio problem I have is that I'm extremely concentrated meaning I have one geography and one crop essentially, or maybe two. Currently, that's wheat. We'll be out there for harvest in June, which should be a lot of fun to ride around on a few tractors. Anyway, so I ended up selling a portion of the farm for the reasons just mentioned to diversify, but also I wanted to transition our farm to organic. And that's a, just a beast of a process. Anyway, this brings me to a long-winded description of I am now a acre trader farmland owner. Proud to say I had to get in there as soon as the drop happened. My God, I almost missed it. So Carter, why don't you tell me a little bit about the farm that I own? Anything that you can give me some good insight into in Nebraska? Nebraska?
1: First of all, we're very excited to have you as an investor on the platform. Now, that farm part in particular was just here pretty recently. It is in a, what we call a good part of Nebraska. We talked a lot about water earlier. Much of Nebraska sits on top of the Ogallala Aquifer. and many places, that thing is uh, bad news bears. In addition, you, you've got the 98th Meridian, which is an area where the rain line is moving. So, so you're getting less and less precipitation in large parts of Nebraska. So this was actually our first foray into Nebraska. I mentioned 13 states earlier. This was this was our 13. The reason for that was is this was a mile from a river. It sits on, on top of one of the very few parts of the Ogallala aquifer that is replenishing. So it's it's filling up at a good rate. So the water table underneath that farm, believe it or not, is about eight feet deep. Just damn near dig down there and, and find the water with a shovel. So really, really exciting on that front. Great, reputable organic farmer. He's got about five thousand acres. This is an organic farm as well. And uh it's about a, it's about a mile to the river there. It's on the interstate. New equipment on the farm. So one, one we're really excited about.
0: It checked a few boxes for me. One, I love that it's in Nebraska, so it's about an hour away from where my old man was born in Holstein, Nebraska, which is outside of Hastings. There's like 10 people in the town. I can go drive by and take a gander at it one day, but the organic part I thought was important. You know, it's funny. I remember growing up as a kid, my old man talking about that aquifer. (laughs) He said it's going to dry up someday. Hasn't happened yet, I don't think totally, but it sounds like it's on its way.
1: That, that is the unfortunate truth. Me too, by the way. My old man has a master's degree in groundwater and is a water freak, and that's a paranoia built into me, probably. Been been talking about the Ogallala since, since I was a kid. Some of, there, there are some bad problem areas there. And again, there are some good ones, too. But as a whole, the, the aquifer is pretty problematic for a number of farmers, unfortunately.
0: I mean, I wonder how much, to get off on a tangent, how much technology could play a role in solving some of these issues, whether it's through desalinization or just reducing the global stressors of water as a major issue in the coming decades, which could theoretically alleviate some of the issues these farms have. Is that something that you guys keep an eye on? Is it maybe a decade or two away? Is it something that is, do you think about it all?
1: Think about it too much. Maybe reduce, reuse, recycle, right? All, all those things can be Influenced by technology and they are, so we are, we are certainly seeing far more responsible water usage throughout most farming areas in the US. You're exactly right that in some places it's not a material consideration today. But we really want to think about the farms that we look at, think about the exit, right? What in 10 years when this is being sold, in five years and a much later time frame, when that buyer looks out the next decade, will they be comfortable with the water situation? Because if not, you're gonna have a material value impairment or potentially have that water is not a hair on fire situation in most places today. California is one exception. This is a now problem. It is a right now issue. And we will see hundreds of thousands of acres lost up to I think a million of acres lost in California over the coming years because of of water usage. Let's
0: go back to my farm. Let's go back to me. I'm looking at the farm and obviously we're on a podcast and these are expectations and you can talk about it and disclose it out the wazoo you want. I see that this is going to be growing some corn, some barley. You guys bought the farm for a little over 3 million bucks. Cash yield gross about 3.7 and a projected net return around 8%. That sounds pretty juicy to me in a world of 1.5% interest rates. And I should expect to hold this for how long? Five, 10 years?
1: That is the idea. Five, five to 10 years.
0: So someone who's interested in these, what's the minimum? What's the maximum that people can invest?
1: Minimum is usually around 15 to 25,000 on, on a per, uh, per offering basis. The maximum is however big the deal is, right? So we have people that will, you know, we have institution, family office type players on the platform today. And some of those come in and they may allocate $100,000 per deal, right? Or they may come in and just pick off a half million here and a quarter million there. There's all kinds of ways to participate. And that's one of the beauties of the platform is that you can choose. You can, whether there's an emotional appeal of being in Nebraska or a pure financial, that's what we're after, the financial appeal of farmland and uh, the underwriting and realizing, hey, this looks like a really well put together offering.
0: We're just going to do a little brainstorming here. I love giving unsolicited ideas and advice. So feel free to take these and dump them in the trash can. But I've talked to a lot of people listeners of this show that have invested on your platform, including some people that own, I mean, over a dozen farms. (laughs) And so I think one friend said he owned over 20. So for the people that end up saying, look, I just want to max diversify. I want to invest in every deal you guys have. Have you ever considered of doing like a, not a rolling fund as Angelus would call it, but maybe just a fund in general where it's like almost like an automatic allocation to have people be able to put it on autopilot. Is that something that's in the cards, perhaps?
1: Potentially is. And shout out to our friend, Kenny, who I think you referenced a moment ago. It potentially is in the cards for us. It's something we've evaluated pretty intensely. We've got a couple of attorneys on staff and we've recently gone through the exercise yet again. Our focus is on how do we keep fees low for the investor and making sure that we're able to wrap that around any type of uh, fund or, or restructure. And importantly also, transparency. We mentioned a moment ago, the the beauty of the platform and being able to participate when you want and in what you'd like to. And the fund removes some of that optionality.
0: Well, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a fund per se, as you say, look, if you commit 20 grand a quarter or 20 grand a month, whatever your frequency and minimum is, it would give AcreTrader a, I mean, you guys seem supply constrained anyway, but it would give you a kind of set expectation on people that are just wanting to allocate and just like trust you guys and say, look, I want to just bang, 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 invest in a bunch of these deals. It would give a little more certainty on the potential investors and allow them to remove the the stress of the drops of getting in there for the top shot. Anyway, just an idea. Because in my mind, I would do something similar if it was because I like the diversification, but also more interested in, say, the organic farms, right? So for me, there is a filter But I would just be interested in that as a kind of rolling sort of investment. Anyway, thanks for you guys to marinate on. (laughs) Can you guys give us any previews? How often are you guys dropping farms? Once a week, once a month?
1: We do a, a farm a week right now is the rough
0: average. Can you give us any broad previews of what might be coming down the pipe?
1: We've got about a month of our pipeline built out today. That's pretty typical for us to be able to look out a month. And so, I think by the time this goes to air, we may miss a few of those anyway. But suffice to say, the important thing there is that that same incredibly stringent diligence process is being applied methodically every time we bring an offering to market. Our-
0: I'm just looking at all the various. I'm on your site right now, and I'm going through and I'm looking. You got apples and cherries and peas and corn and pecans. Interesting. What do you think is sort of the max? And I assume they're riskier in some capacity for the ones that end up looking at like a 10 plus percent yield. Is it necessarily that they're riskier or is it just a function of the actual deal? Why shouldn't I just buy all the ones that say there's a 10% plus return as opposed to the ones that may be a little bit lower?
1: It comes down to risk versus reward, right? As you've highlighted, the overall risk profile of farmland investing relative to most major asset classes is attractive. Right, we look at the the sharp ratios of of the asset class, if you will, the risk versus reward. It is really exciting, but you're exactly right. I think as is with any, just about anything else, you do tend to move up the risk curve a little bit for higher yields, and most of that's a deal by deal basis, and it's pretty, no, it's very explicitly described in, in that deal and where your exposures are. That's the general idea there.
0: What what are the traditional risks that I face? And I'm saying I as pertain to all these farms. Is it bugs? Is it weather? Is it act of God? What is it?
1: For row crops, it looks quite a bit different. I, I think the you know the risks are really... Some of the primary ones are, are operator risk and an operator not taking proper care of your soil or your ditches or your drainage or the wells or equipment maybe on that farm. With permanent crops, you then do step a little more directly into commodity risk. right? If you buy almond trees, then you, you really do want to be bullish on almonds for some long period of time. We internally have deep macro research on every commodity type, not, not every, but certainly all the ones we are exposed to today and many that we evaluate. And so we do avoid some of the riskier commodities that are, that are out there. There are some nuts, there are some citruses, citrus, citrus, is it plural? Uh, and there there are some citrus, I don't know. And there there are some fruits as well that are a little more dangerous.
0: Which are the uninvestable ones? The oranges? What are the stuff you guys shy away from?
1: The juice has got to be worth the squeeze, right? So there's, there's little that's uninvestable. It just comes down to price at the end of the day because there is at least some underlying demand, even for oranges is a great idea, right? Florida oranges, most of which are, are juice oranges. That seems pretty like what was the last time you had a glass of OJ? There's a real secular headwind against that industry. So it's something that we haven't participated in. There are specialty nuts out there. There are specialty fruits and, and other uh, vegetables that are, that can be a little concerning as well. And so. We don't want to go out and dog people's particular operations because they may have real reasons why they're invested there. But we as a platform have, have strayed from a lot of, from quite a bit. That's way to put that.
0: It's funny you say that about the orange juice. We wrote an investment piece called The Investing Pyramid, and it looked back at what was the commonly accepted beliefs of our parents' generation of food. And it was like, you need to eat 10 servings a day of pasta and cereal and, and lip <laughs> sugars and everything else. I mean, my God, the things I ate for breakfast right now, even the concept of giving my son fruit loops every morning for breakfast gives me like sweaty palms. I can't believe it. And one of the My favorite private investing startups that I continually see, and I still think it's probably tailwinds, is reimagining a lot of foods from our youth, but with healthy ingredients. And Magic Spoon is the obvious one with cereal. Listeners, if you haven't tried it, it's actually pretty good where they're trying to go higher protein, lower carbs and sugar, added sugar and all that stuff. But you get us a healthy Twinkie and a healthy powdered donuts. We'll see what that world looks like. The paper we wrote, the analogy was, what did our parents' generation believe about investing versus what we now know and believe? And it's changed quite a bit over the past 50 years. Some things haven't changed. My goodness, what's going on in 2021? Farmland hopefully will be a a safe haven when all the madness ends.
1: That's my argument to my parents' generation is, why, why are you buying bonds and gold when you can invest in farmland, right?
0: Yeah, well, look, you know, everyone on the planet smoked cigarettes back then, too. I don't fault them because maybe you didn't know, but that's the beauty of knowledge that compounds over time. All right, let's say I've got a million bucks that I want to invest in farmland. I'm sure you've gotten a million of these emails or calls already and say, okay, Carter and team, I'm going to invest a million bucks over the course of the next year, two years. I want to diversify, optimize my farm sharp ratio and buy a handful of farms in different geographies. What's your recommendation? How many farms do I need? How many different crops? How many different geographies? What's the best way to deploy that money?
1: So first, big, bright, flashing disclaimer, we do not give investment advice. The thing that we point people to is there are some great white papers out there. TIAA Nuveen has some really interesting data. Hancock has some interesting data. There are a few others.
0: We'll add all the white papers you want to send over to the show notes, mebfaber.com forward slash podcast.
1: Sweet. Prudential as well. There's a lot of them out there that can, you know, as well as our website. We have reams of information on our website you can read about and we, we can explain to you.
0: Hypothetically speaking, how might one consider a strategy of putting a diversified portfolio together?
1: I think the two primary considerations are Crop type, and that can be as simple as row versus permanent crops, and geographic diversification as well. Right? That's really the primary two things we see people seeking. As I mentioned earlier, the the this is historical returns, right? This is not a prediction of the future, but the efficient frontier there had been around call it 70-30 of row crop versus permanent crop. Some folks want to do more 50-50. We see some people do all one or all the other. Some people just want the juicier stuff and they like cons and the, the secular trend behind that long term or or some people just want ultra boring corn and soybeans because that has produced wealth over generations and something more they're very interested in. That's how I got into investing in farmland a long, long time ago and still a, a very core core part of just about any, any farmland portfolio is having those base commodities.
0: How many different of within those sort of rovers perm would you say, is a reasonable amount to have? Is it like four different crops? Do I need 10? Is it a declining utility after maybe three or four?
1: It probably becomes a declining utility after a certain point, especially with row crops, because if you're buying the right kind of ground, you switch them out, or the farmer switches them out anyway, right? So the quality of the asset is more important than the commodity itself, right? So that, that gets you back to geographic diversification as opposed to crop type diversification.
0: Have you guys had the good problem yet of, let's say, some of your family office investors or just someone listening to this MIT endowment, maybe it's a high net worth individual, says, Carter, actually, I don't have a million bucks, I have 10 or 100 million and you sound like a genuine human being. Can I just have you guys manage it and do it for me? The problem is I would soak up all of your supply for the next year. <laughs> you know, have you guys had those conversations? Or is it not a focus? Have you considered doing it as a sidecar or as a sub-advisor? How do you respond to those?
1: For folks that want to buy a farm, right? Because we, we also see that with timeline, right? Some people say, look, I don't want to own it for 10 years. I want to own it for generations. And you're exactly right. I want, maybe I want to buy a $10 million farm. We can and will continue to help facilitate those types of transactions. So yes, for, for those types of investors, we absolutely work with them.
0: But they don't just want to buy it. They want you guys to manage it too. They don't want to deal with it. They just want to give Carter and Acre Trader the money, say here.
1: That's right. We are thrilled to have those conversations. We see a lot of those folks ultimately end up investing directly on the platform. I know you have a lot of quant investing type of listeners. We have a shocking amount of quant investors on our platform. They come in and systemically invest in deals, and they're some of our favorite folks to talk to because they know numbers and they dig in hard and and ask really really great questions.
0: It's such an obvious missing piece, and has just been such a pain in the booty. You know, I was thinking about it as we were talking about the risks, and smiling as you were talking about the, the former risk of what happens. We've told it many times before, but we had a thankfully insured, but we had a combine burned down and burned down an entire, it was like the best wheat crop we've ever had in like my lifetime (laughs) and burned down the entire thing. Not to say that it was user error, but it was one of those things you wouldn't expect. And then just scratch your head and say, well, yeah, this, I can see why this isn't just a set it and forget it sort of dividend reinvestment that you can stick in your, your Vanguard account. What's the future look like for you guys? Any other thoughts that we didn't cover today as you look out to the horizon? Anything else that we didn't cover you think is particularly interesting, got you worried, got you excited, all that stuff?
1: The one big one is our commitment to access, liquidity, and transparency. And, and we want to just continue to double down on, on those things in particular. we bring the best opportunities and the win win scenarios to market. The other one is what questions people should ask us. And when you're investing, asking about the water, asking about the operator. The neighborhood, the exit strategy, our business, and, and what our plans are, and how and why we're going to be here doing this in 10 years and, and longer. We love hard questions. And so we really encourage people to come spend time with us, call us. We've got a full investor relations team here. We firmly, firmly believe that the best investor is an educated one. And, and we want people to know not only who we are and what we're up to, but we want them to be able to understand exactly the offerings we're bringing to market and what the thesis is, right? So I think that's a big part of it. And then, you know, again, we talked about farm sourcing earlier, but how we find farms, it really comes down to spending millions of dollars having the best data, the best tools, and most importantly, the best people out looking for land. And that's, that's really what our company is rooted in, what we're firmly doing every day, all day here.
0: So if my Nebraska farm just crushes it and we get a big fat rent check at the end of the year... What do you guys do? You just send me a check in the mail? Do I get a K-1? How's it all
1: work? Most of our investors will link their bank account through the investment process. And it's very simple. We just drop money in your wallet and you can drag it out to your bank. We can ACH wire, we can even mail checks. We don't love doing it, but we will. So it's, it's pretty straightforward on that front. From, from an accounting and tax standpoint, we do send out K-1s. Again, that's electronically deposited in your wallet, in your account. This year, we got all of those out in February with maybe the exception of one farm, if not two, that happened at the very beginning of March. So that's the great thing about farming is it's really straightforward p l very easy quote unquote business. And so we get those out in a, in a very timely manner.
0: We normally ask what's been your most memorable investment, but of the past two years, what's been the most memorable moment for you guys? It could be part of the fundraising experience. It could be... Drinking too much bourbon on a farm in Kentucky and sleeping in the woods? I don't know. Anything uh, come to mind as uh, particularly memorable over this rocket ship ride you guys have been on for the past couple of years?
1: I'll avoid the bourbon-related stories for obvious reasons. There are so many great memories, and I, and I like hate to cop out on an answer for you. We have what we call dopamine rushes, right? The big days where everybody cheers and it's just pumped up. For me, I think the overarching theme has been the, the people here that I get to work with every day and seeing them excited. Seeing them pumped about being here at work and having a material impact in the business. So it's lots of little hits along the way of seeing people win. I think that's the most exciting thing about our business.
0: We'll have you back on to talk the bourbon story. Are you guys going to have like an Acre Trader Lollapalooza sort of Coachella event where we can all come hang out on the farm and do a little post Corona socializing and all get to see some of our land in action? Come on, are you guys going to do a little Acre Trader tour or what?
1: We absolutely are. Stay tuned on that front. One of the farmers we partner with as a Calvados distillery or an Apple Brandy distillery with the apples that come off of this farm. So we might have to make that part of the story.
0: All sponsor the beer tent. What sort of runway do you have? Are you guys going to ever raise another fundraising round for the really wealthy VCs and endowments listening to this? You guys got plans for a Series B or is this uh, kind of set you off into cash flow heaven for the foreseeable future?
1: this can set us off. And I think it comes down to, we've got a very, very long runway in front of us. And it comes down to us as, as operators of, can we effectively deploy capital? We are not in spend mode. Uh, even after just just raising a large round, we still had most of our previous round left in our bank account. We are not aggressive spenders buying ping pong tables and all that kind of fun stuff. So pretty conservative in our underwriting of our people, of our farms, and of our own business. So we, we want to make sure that we're here for the long term. And that's the primary focus.
0: Carter. Been a blast as always for the listeners. I'm sure they know where to go, but if they want to find out what's going on with you guys, check out the next drop. What's the right place?
1: AcreTrader.com.
0: Thanks so much for joining me again, my man, and look forward to see you in in the real world. Thank you, man. Same to you. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on itunes and subscribe the show anywhere good podcasts are found thanks for listening friends and good investing